Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. Thank, thank you, Terry. That was great. Very famous verse, um, but appropriate, I think, for today. Um, let me just say, I became a Christian when I was about 14. So I'd actually grown up in a Christian family, um, so I was very familiar with the idea of God. I went along to church with my family every week. I think when I was about uh, very, very young, I remember praying with my parents about being a Christian, but not really able to fully understand it at that very young age. But when I was about 14, I went with my church youth group for a weekend away. I mainly went there to kick a football around and mess around with my friends, if I'm honest. But it was during that weekend that the Holy Spirit really convicted me of the fact that I was a sinner and I needed to be saved. And a few of my other friends on that same weekend had that same experience. And one of them asked one of the youth leaders a great question. He said, where should I begin when I read the Bible? Where should I begin? Just the first page? Do I just start at the beginning? It's a great question. And the answer was a good answer. The youth leader said, why don't you begin reading the book of Matthew? Okay, if you don't know, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Along with Mark, Luke and John, it's one of the Gospels. It's called that name, I think, because it sort of means the good news. That's what it can mean. And basically, those four books, of all the books in the Bible, give you the most information about what Jesus did when he was on earth, when he came to earth, what he did, what he said, and obviously about his crucifixion and his resurrection as well. So basically, this youth leader was saying, get to know Jesus as much as you can and start with the book of Matthew. Great answer and great advice. The next morning, I was very enthusiastic to begin reading the book of Matthew. Now, remember, I'd grown up in church, so I knew some of the stories of Jesus. I knew he walked on the water. I knew that he had turned water into wine. I knew he had fed thousands of people with some loaves of bread and some fish. I knew he'd raised people from the dead. Jesus, I knew the stories about Jesus, and I was excited to read the book of Matthew to find out what was it that Jesus did. Who was he? Now, I don't know if you remember from your English lessons at school, your teacher might have said to you, when you start a story or start an essay, grab their attention. Have an impactful start when you're writing your story. You may remember that at school. So with all of the material available to Matthew, surely of any story, his is going to have a gripping start. I couldn't wait to read what Matthew would say about the life of Jesus. So I turned to the book of Matthew, expecting an amazing story, something that's going to grab my attention. The beginning of Matthew is a long list of names. It's not what you might expect. The book of Matthew starts with the genealogy of Jesus. It traces Jesus' ancestry all the way back to Abraham. Lots of names I struggle to even pronounce. Not maybe the thing you'd expect, or not the thing I'd have expected when I was reading Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. What was he doing there? Why did he start that way? Well, maybe, maybe he was, he was a Jewish man. Maybe he was primarily writing to Jewish people and wanted, before he even got to the stuff about Jesus, he wanted them to know he's one of us. This is his ancestry. He goes back that way. Maybe that's what Matthew is doing. Maybe. Okay, so let's think about Luke then. Luke was one of the other gospel writers. He was a Gentile. 
So he didn't primarily write to Jewish people. How would he introduce the life of Jesus? He starts with the story of John the Baptist's birth. He then goes on to the birth of Jesus, and you're thinking, okay, we're on our way. Luke seems to have the right idea. I'm excited with Luke, and you get to the end of chapter 3. Almost, you've hardly begun on this amazing story, and at the end of Luke chapter 3, he has a long list of names. His, his list is even longer. His genealogy goes all the way back, actually, to Adam. So he traces Jesus' ancestry all the way back to Adam. So what is going on? I think what these writers are saying is, if you want to understand what Jesus did and who he is, you need to understand the full story. You need to actually have a history lesson first to understand why it is that Jesus came. So this morning, as we look at this Easter story and what Jesus did for us, I want to do that together. I want us to actually go right back to the beginning, right back to the beginning of the story to try and understand why was it that God sent his son to come and be the saviour of the world. And actually, as you look at this long list of names, I hope, if nothing else, what you'll see this morning is that Easter and Jesus dying on the cross and being raised to new life, it wasn't God's last throw of the dice. It wasn't God snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. It wasn't that he had tried all these other ideas. They weren't working, so he thinks... I'm going to have to send Jesus. That was not the way it was. Jesus was always planned to come in exactly the way he came, through exactly the line of people he came through. That was always God's perfect plan. And I hope you'll be encouraged as we look at this this morning that Easter demonstrates his perfect plan. We've even been singing about, actually, God's plan and being caught up in his plan. And I hope that you'll be really encouraged as we do that this morning. So... We're going right back to the very first verse of the Bible, right back to Genesis chapter 1. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it for us. The first verse of the Bible says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You are not an accident. I'm not an accident. I'm created. You are created. Genesis chapter 1 describes how God created the heavens and the earth, how he created the fish, the animals, the vegetation, and then finally he created man. He created Adam and Eve. And it says in verse 27, he created Adam and Eve in the image of God, in his own image. We're the only ones among his creation who have his image. We bear his image, and it is an incredible accolade, an amazing privilege that we are his image bearers. God created you, and he created me. I don't know if you notice, often the Bible is beautifully understated, in moments, And there's one of those in Genesis chapter 1 where God sees his creation and he says it is good. Or it is very good. Very understated. It was perfect. God created a perfect creation. He had a perfect relationship with his children. It says later in chapter 3 that he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day looking for his children. It's just a beautiful image. A perfect relationship with his children. If you've been going to church for any length of time, maybe even if you haven't been to church, you'll know that the story doesn't finish there. But sadly, chapter 3 is not that far away. And we, dis- we see the description there of Adam and Eve's sin and the fall of mankind. And it's devastating. 
what happens? Well, the serpent, he is there in the garden and he tempts Eve and he tempts Adam to disobey God. And how does he do it? He does a couple of things. He says, surely God didn't really mean, and he tries to twist the words of God. Then he goes on to say to Eve, if actually you take of this fruit that you are forbidden from taking, actually you will have full knowledge and that will make you like God. And it's a lie that he still sends out to us. Did God really say that? You don't need, you can be like God, you can be your own God. He's always been lying. Jesus says he's the father of lies, and when he's, when he's lying, he's speaking his native tongue. He was there at the beginning lying to Eve, and he does it today. Tragically, Adam and Eve were taken in, and they take of that fruit. And what happens? They know straight away they've sinned, they know it. How do we know that they know? It wasn't that God later spoke to them and said what he did then was wrong. Straight away they know they've done wrong. They go into hiding. They cover themselves up because they feel ashamed. Devastating. Sin had entered into the human condition and it was going to affect every one of us who would follow. It was devastating. I just pause. Remember what we're doing here. We are going right back to the beginning to understand why it was that Jesus had to come. I don't know whether when you think of the sin, Adam and Eve's sin and the fall, whether you immediately make that connection with, okay, there was sin, they took of the fruit, and that is why there was death. That is why we have the fallenness of creation now. That you go straight from, almost it happens simultaneously, they eat of the fruit And the result is death and decay. Because we know that actually the death and decay that we see is a result of the fall of mankind. So do you make that connection that it's immediate? If you do, I want to just make you read Genesis chapter 3. There is a moment, there is a gap between Adam and Eve taking the fruit and death being the result. Because God, in chapter 3, goes and walks in the garden to speak to Adam and Eve. God speaks to them. He sees what they have done. There is this brokenness in relationship now between God and his children. But God then has a choice. How do I deal with this situation? So there is this gap. It is God then... In chapter 3, says to Adam quite famously, from dust you came, and to dust you will return. God says, the consequence of this, what you have done, Adam, is that death results. God had a decision to make. How does he deal with it? Could he not just have said, Adam, Eve, what have you done? This isn't good, Our relationship's ruined, but we will just carry on. We'll make the best of it. It's never going to be the same anymore, but, okay, well, we'll just do the best that we can with the situation. He could have done it, but he didn't. He said, from dust you came, to dust you will return. God said, my creation must be subjected to death. Why would he do that? Why would he do it? Maybe today of all weekends you might begin to think, how can God introduce death and it be in a loving way? Maybe that kind of phrase might be resonating on Easter weekend. How could God, who is a God of love, 
he loves his children. How could he say he wants to bring death into this situation? Think about it a different way. What if he hadn't? What if he hadn't? His creation, Adam and Eve, all of us who would follow, in that fallenness, in that sinfulness, in that brokenness, it would have never, ever ended. It would have continued forever. That brokenness would never, ever, ever have ended. Sometimes when we go through pain and suffering in our lives, there's that phrase, that cliche, that time is a healer. A bit by bit it will get easier. If God hadn't done anything, time would never have been a healer in the Garden of Eden. This brokenness between his children and him would have just continued forever. God, in his love for his children, said, no, this must pass. I'm about creating something new and perfect, but for that new and perfect new creation to come, this one must pass. Adam, you have got to go back to the dust so that something new and perfect for you to enjoy can come. And if you go all the way back to the very, very second to last chapter of the whole Bible, Revelation chapter 21, where John, the Apostle John, is seeing a vision of what God is still to do. He says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The first two chapters of the Bible, God's perfect creation. The last two chapters of the Bible, God's perfect new creation. And in the middle, God is working out a plan to get his children from a desperate place where they're in brokenness and not in a relationship with him, to this place where there is perfect paradise, perfect new creation, where they're perfectly back in relationship with him. And God is about working this plan. So maybe you can see now why God says, now Adam, I can't tolerate you and your children being in this situation forever. I will bring about a new creation. You must pass away so that this new one can come. And you start to think, wow, God, you had a plan right from the very beginning about dealing with this toxic mess of a breakdown in relationship caused by Adam and Eve. It's an amazing plan. You might be thinking, though, okay, well, that sounds a little bit like, or maybe one of two things. Maybe it sounds like you're, you're kind of putting your putting a dog who's broken its leg out, you're putting a, a dog down, so put it out of its misery, you kind of, you, you've got so much compassion for this animal that you don't want them to hurt, so it's better that actually they just die. Maybe that's one thing. Well, no, actually, because God is creating something new and perfect for his children. It's not just, this is ruined, it must pass away. He's doing it so that something new and greater can come. It's an amazing thing. But maybe you're thinking... Well, hang on a minute, if, if Adam and Eve's sin was the very thing that caused the problem in this first creation, how can it be possible that Adam and Eve and you and me can enjoy this new creation because we're still sinful? Surely something has to happen to the sin, otherwise what is the point? What is the point in this new creation if actually sin is not dealt with? And if you're thinking that thing, I think you're on the right lines. God had to deal with the sin. Otherwise, there was no point in this new creation that he was making for his children. Maybe today, again, Easter weekend, you're beginning to think, okay, yeah, God, how did you deal with the sin of mankind? That they could be caught up and joined in with this new creation that you are promising for us. 
So at the beginning, I mentioned that we have this genealogy of Jesus and it traces his ancestry all the way back to the beginning. And I wanted to encourage us to look right at the beginning to see what was the perfect plan that God started and initiated that kind of leads all the way through this line of people to Jesus. And maybe now you're beginning to see it. God wanted to deal with your sin. There are actually, along this long line of people, there are lots of things that happen and in some ways increasingly give more and more volume and announcement of the coming Messiah. There are little bits and pieces and it's almost like this kind of, it gets bigger and bigger as Jesus and his birth in Bethlehem are closer. One of the things that we see there is that God gives the Ten Commandments and the many other laws as well. Why did he do that? He showed what it was to be righteous before God. But actually, Galatians and other parts of the New Testament talk about that being actually condemnation for us. It's, it's, just, it's not necessarily good. Galatians 3 even calls the law, what Moses brought, as a, a curse for you, that Jesus separated you or freed you from the curse of the law. God is showing us something about the righteousness of God so that we know we need saving. He is pointing towards a Messiah. Even the very Old Testament Ten Commandments and the law and many of the other things that you read in those old scriptures are pointing towards the need for a Messiah because we simply cannot deal with that sin ourselves. What did the work of Jesus do on the cross? We've heard so much of it already in the worship this morning. Here's a verse from 1 John that says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Jesus is that atoning sacrifice. The promised one, the one that God said right at the start would be his plan for the salvation of mankind, that your sin can be dealt with if you receive this gift of grace from him. My sin will be dealt with as well, so that when I die, when I go to the dust, or if Jesus comes first, I'm welcomed into heaven, into the new heavens and the new earth, because my sin has been dealt with. I'm free to enter. That is what Jesus did on the cross. That is why we go all the way back to the beginning of the story. We see his plan and we see how God is working a way that his own son would come. And actually, even in that very first part of the story I was reading just a minute ago, this, the fall where Adam and Eve sin, actually God says something to the serpent at that point, which is interesting. He says to him, the offspring of Eve, one of those offspring will come and you will strike his heel and he will crush your head. Even in that very moment, right at the beginning, he is saying to the enemy, one is going to come. You may strike him, but actually, he will crush you. There is a victory coming through one of my children, this long, long, long list of names. One of the offspring will come. And so it's no surprise then that as you look through that Old Testament story, the enemy is quite um, obsessed with wiping out the line, wiping out the seed, wiping out the offspring that would come. You see it multiple times. You see it with Pharaoh trying to kill off the Hebrew boys in in Egypt. And we see that actually God preserves Moses so that later he can bring back his people and that people can continue 
You see it quite famously with Jesus himself when he is born, that Herod tries to kill off the newborn boy so that this promised Messiah can't actually come. The enemy knows that God has got this plan for a Messiah to come and is determined to try and ruin that plan. A lesser well-known story, perhaps, sort of towards the middle of the sort of Old Testament um, history, you've got lots of kings, many of them, they sound the same, it's hard to remember who followed who. There's one where there's a queen, in fact, Queen Italia, who tries to kill off all of the direct descendants from David. And remember, if you've been at Beacon the last few weeks, we've heard that David was promised that one of his descendants would always be on the throne forever. And we know that fulfills itself with Jesus. But this queen, she is determined to take the throne herself and she kills all of the direct descendants of the previous king, potentially ruining this promise, ruining, ruining this line from David. And what happens? Well, there's an uncle and he keeps a young boy hidden in a temple for six years called Josiah. Everyone else wiped out, but at the right time he comes and takes his place on the throne. You think, God, you just, your plan is perfect. You preserved your promises, even when it appears in every, to everyone else, it, it seems like this plan must be failing. God, God's plan is perfect and continues. And I want to encourage you, we're going to respond a little bit in a song, um, not to, in a few minutes' time. I want to encourage you to praise a God whose plans are perfect. Why did God do it this way? Couldn't God, as soon as sin happened, as soon as there was the fall, why didn't God just send his son that day? Why did he wait however many thousands of years? Why did he wait for this long line of people? I don't know the answer to that question. It's a big question. But there is something in the way that God has revealed his plan which will give him such glory. Such glory. You see the way he works through people. You see the way he's working through you and me even today. And you see, well, God is a... God's plans are so much higher than ours. His ways are so much bigger. And he is somehow going to be glorified in all of this. When that final day comes, Owen mentioned it in his communion message before. When that day comes and we are with him in this new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, we'll be thinking, wow, God, you're going to receive so much glory through this intricate and beautiful plan that you have perfectly carried out. So I want the band, if they're around, I don't know where they are, I think they've got a song to sing. We're actually fairly early, so maybe they've um, escaped for a coffee or something. Um, We're going to sing. And I want to encourage you just to stand up, if you wouldn't mind, if you just want to stand This Easter, we rightfully think about that day where Jesus rose from the grave. It was a pivotal point in the plans of God, but it was part of a full plan. And we're going to celebrate him for that this morning. So I don't know if I've given you guys enough time. Perhaps not. But we're going to sing together. Thanks, Matt. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team or upcoming events, please visit our website which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.